we know that a lot of our homeless population are veterans, veterans who came back from war, have mental illness, have PTSD, and the healthcare system did not take care of them properly when they came back from from war. Um, why are we not addressing those issues and making sure that we don't have a mental health crisis, where we don't have a, a homelessness uh, uh, crisis? We have, you know, I, I think the, the statistic that gets thrown around is like there are six empty homes for every homeless person. Why aren't we addressing the fact that we don't really have a housing crisis? We have a ton of houses. We just won't let people live in them. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Welcome to the first Activist MMT candidate interview, hosted by Ramona Masachi and co-hosted by me, Jeff Epstein. Today we talk with candidate Jason Call, who is running in Washington State's 2nd Congressional District against a 20-year incumbent that Jason calls, quote, arguably the most corporate conservative Democrat in the Washington State delegation. This is someone who benefits from large donations from corporations that pollute and exacerbate the climate crisis, among other things. In 2020, Jason came within one percentage point of placing second in a district where the top two candidates, regardless of party, move on to the general election. He earned about 35,000 votes on a shoestring budget of $50,000. For the upcoming primary in August 2022, He's going to need a lot more than that to breach the top two and have an actual policy debate with a candidate who has little to offer beyond moderately less abuse than the Republican. You can support Jason's candidacy by visiting callforcongress.com. That's F-O-R, not the number four. There are three goals of this MMT candidate interview series. The first is to support and give a platform to candidates who care about all people, and because of this, are ignored by the so-called news outlets that are, in reality, news of, by, and for the rich. The second goal is to determine what these candidates need to beat corrupt opponents supported by a corrupt party and a corrupt campaign finance system, and especially, once in office, to avoid becoming corrupted themselves. Finally, the third goal is to create a community of like-minded, MMT-aware candidates who can support each other through their campaigns and especially once in office. The latter is in order to remain focused on what really matters, which is all their constituents, in an environment where there is overwhelming pressure to focus only on the needs, favors, promises, and especially money of big donors, both in and out of their district. 
If you're a candidate and would like to be interviewed by Ramona, please contact Ramona directly on Twitter at at Ramona Masachi or by writing me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If you like what you hear and would like to support this interview series and this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash activistmmt. And now, on to our conversation with candidate for Washington State's 2nd Congressional District, Jason Call. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. I am here with Jason Call, who's running for Congress in Washington District 02. I will be your host, and my co-host is Jeff Epstein from Activist MMT. Say hello, Jeff. Hello, Ramona. Hello, Jason. Thank you both so much for doing this. And I am so excited to talk to you, Jason. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much, Ramona and and Jeff, for uh, entertaining me here on the show. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Um, and I just wanted to, to give a, a quick um, shout out to you in particular, Ramona, for being you know a, a great supporter of progressives in general and my campaign over the last couple of years. I'm so happy that you are running again. And I wanted to know, who are you running against? Um, I'm running against um, arguably the most corporate conservative Democrat, Democrat in the uh, Washington State House delegation, a guy who's been in office here um, in this district for 20 years, uh, and his name is Rick Larson. And uh, just as a little background, um, I have been oppositional to uh, Representative Larson, uh, I think, since about 2005 when he when he voted for the uh, Bankruptcy Reform Act and I started challenging the way he voted um, on policy and you know once once I really got going I, I, I you know over the last 15 years now I've I've realized what a what a really terrible representative he is um, but you know he's he's one of these people that is a fundraiser for the party and he's considered a quote unquote good democrat and so you know we're just trying to crack that nut so i hear rick larson is bought and paid for by the military industrial complex and all of the the people that boeing and um is that true so yeah, um, Rick Larson is uh, a representative for the military-industrial complex, the fossil fuel industry, the aviation industry. He's actually chair of the House Aviation Subcommittee of the Transportation uh, Committee, and uh, you know, there's there's really one of the things that I I want to focus on in general as a progressive candidate is the fact that in Congress. Um, we have people sitting on committees that are regulatory committees who are basically captured by the industries that they are supposed to be regulating. And, and Rick Larson is really a perfect example of that. So how are you going to make it clear to your constituents that Rick Larson is bought and paid for by the people who are basically killing them? 
Well, I mean, it's it's in it's in the voting record. I think um, a lot of people tend not to look at the voting record, and, and in particular, um, don't look at the um, amendment process of the how bills go through Congress and get passed. And so, a lot of times, a, a representative may vote for final passage of a bill that is, you know, a bill that the majority of Democrats are supporting. And Rick Larson actually has has a history of voting against the Democratic majority on on a number of things. You know, for instance, the the estate tax. Um, he wants to repeal the the estate tax, which you know the majority of Democrats want to keep in place. But as you go through um, the amendment process on bills, what you'll find is um, Larson and others and other very corporate Democrats voting. Uh, in very anti-progressive ways, voting in ways that you would think a Democrat shouldn't be voting, you know, I mean, voting not to reduce the military budget, uh, voting to uh, increase funding for nuclear weapons. And, you know, there's all sorts of stuff. And so I have what I would consider to be the best opposition research for progressives in the entire country. Um, I have a guy who works with me. His name is Ben, and he is just a whiz at digging through the congressional record and picking out these votes and saying, why would a Democrat vote for this? Why? You know, and and so Larson's voting record is absolutely rife with terrible, terrible votes that you would think Democrats should not be voting this way. And really, it's incumbent upon me and others who recognize that we need to change, need change in the system to to get out to the voters of this district and highlight this is this is what Rick Larson has been voting for and against. And does this sit well with you as constituents? And how are you how are you messaging that in your district? What are you doing on the ground? Well, it's it's kind of rough on the ground right now. Uh, one, we're we're. You know, progressive fundraising is difficult, and and the reality is one of the ways that you get your message out to constituents is you you have a messaging system, whether it's emails, whether it's postcards, you know, phone banking, and all of that takes money. And so we were able to do some of that in the last cycle in 2020. We had the funding to do that. Um, I think people are a little bit burned out on national level politics right now. I think there's still a lot of uh, fear of Republican reprisal, like we don't want to lose this district. And so, you know, right now I'm just really focusing on fundraising. I've got a good email program going, you know, if people are on my email list, they get to see exactly where I stand on positions. Um, it is one of, one of the interesting things about politics is people tend to shy away from negative messaging. And, and the reality is I don't, I don't have anything good to say about Rick Larson at all. His, his voting record is absolutely atrocious, but even though I've got all the goods on him, I have to be very careful about how I message that to constituents because I can come across as, as just being very negative. Now, the reality for me is our political system is is absolutely corrupt. It It's disgusting. I get physically ill sometimes thinking about how corrupt our political system is. But a lot of people, your day-to-day people who don't pay attention to that, 
you know, they really just want to go about their daily lives and they, and they are very much, Oh, that's very negative. That's, you know, you know, what are you going to do? So I have to go out there and I have to talk to people about, I want to support Medicare for all. Oh, and by the way, Rick Larson doesn't support it. I want to support the green new deal because our planet is in crisis. Oh, by the way, Rick, Rick Larson has said the green, green new deal is not an important resolution. And he takes money from the industries that are killing the planet. So you really have to thread the needle with the average voter. Um, um, very carefully. Can I can I actually uh, ask a follow up regarding that? Sure. Um, you you said before that people are afraid of I forget exactly how you worded it, but basically afraid of you know that the Republican might win. Right. So therefore, you know, they kind of like we don't want to we don't want to trash the Democrat because the Republican yep. might win. So that can you talk a little bit about that fear of you know that basically that good is not possible, and let's just keep our heads down and avoid the Republican. Um, yeah, I mean, well, one of the things in Washington state here, I, I think is a little bit different um, than many other places in the country, uh, is that this district is not going to go to a Republican. We are a solidly blue district, and Washington also has a uh, top two primary system. So when I go and talk to voters about why they should vote for me and not the, uh, the opponent, I'm very clear. Like, I, I don't think I'm going to beat Rick Larson in the primary. I think, it, you know, I have enough humility about the fact that, you know, he raises a million dollars. He's able to get his message out there. And, and he's been their representative for 20 years and they're like, oh, well, you know, he's, you know, maybe he's not the greatest, but he's a good Democrat, which is obviously not my opinion. But I have to I have to explain to people um, we're a top two primary. You know, we, we have the opportunity in this district to actually push a Republican off the ballot completely and have a policy discussion. So that's how I message to my um, potential constituents here is that don't you want a policy debate in this district? Uh, we could actually have that here. We could have a Democrat on Democrat. We could have some real policy debates. We can just push the Republican off the ballot. And, and Rick Larson, you know, beats in, in the last 10 years, uh, he beats the Republican two to one. I mean, this is a very democratic district. You know, it's not going to go to Republican. It's interesting that uh, as we are going through the redistricting process here, and and we will know November 15th, what the actual new district boundaries are going to be. Um, we've got, there are four people on the Washington state uh, redistricting commission. Two of them are Democrats and two of them are Republicans coming from the state legislature. And the Democrats are actively making, uh, or, or working to make the second district here more conservative. And that is, you know, a protective measure for who is somebody who is a very corporate Democrat. And I really believe that they are actively trying to make the district more conservative because, I got very close to having that policy discussion with Rick Larson in 2020. I got almost 35,000 votes. We were about 1% of the primary from being the second Democrat on the ballot. Uh, I was the person that he did not want to face post-primary. I mean, it was it was clear you know, he knows he's going to beat the Republican. They they may have a, a stronger challenge. And when I say they, I'm talking about, you know, the corporate establishment wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, they would have a, a potential real challenge on their hands if a good progressive like myself, who is well-versed in policy, who speaks clearly to issues, um, gets out there in front of the public and, and puts that contrast against, you know, essentially a do-nothing Republican. I mean, uh, do-nothing Democrat who is captured by corporate money. They did not want that contrast. So um, again, 
I think getting the message to to voters about this is this is a safe blue district. The the only time uh, Larson even came close to potentially having a seat flip was in that big wave of Democratic losses that came in 2010. I mean, he still beat the Republican. The Republican who ran in this district was was you know a very sort of arch conservative. But beyond that, he has handily beaten the Republicans. So I think the voters of this district really deserve that policy discussion. And that and that's the way I'm trying to present it to them. So um, I understand Rick Larson will not debate you. And if you, not if, when you win, will he be forced to debate you? I think he's going to have to. He uh, he will not even acknowledge my campaign. We actually went through the entire primary season. So, you know, there's a there's a lot of local Democratic Party organizations that I had to be in front of and talk to because I was seeking endorsement. I did get endorsement from from half of the local party organizations around here. But, you know, we all sat in Zoom meetings. And so I got to, to hear Rick Larson multiple times give his pitch. And every time he gave his pitch, he talked about the inevitable Republican he was going to be facing in the general election. So he was actively ignoring my campaign because it does him no good to acknowledge that he has a progressive challenger. Um, it, there's, there's no, he knows that I can beat him with the constituents on policy every time. You know, and if that's what it was, it was it was him and I next to each other. And I said, these are the things that I'm going to fight for. These are the things that I, I stand for. I think I'd win this race. So he doesn't want to acknowledge that he has that kind of challenge at all. So right through the primary, um, he's going to ignore my campaign again. I'm sure of it. And then post primary, if it's me and him on the general election ballot, uh, I, I believe he's going to be forced to debate. I think the local Democratic Party organizations, because there are there are good progressives in the Democratic Party here, and I think that they will demand it. So last election cycle, you raised 50K um, yep. and you got 35,000 votes. So how much have you raised this election cycle so far? I, I'll be honest, I don't. I really don't know. We just did our FEC filing um, and I haven't added it up, but I think we're around 70K in totality since uh, we started, you know, a a year ago now. I think we've raised $70,000 over the course of the year Um, and we've got until, you know, next August to continue raising money. I want to be very upfront that that I'm there's no way I'm going to uh, compete with Rick Larson on funding, but. I do realistically need to raise probably two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand dollars to be to be competitive, and that is simply so that I can, you know, pay some staff, get messaging out there, print the materials I need to print, keep running the website and the and the uh, and the tech for messaging. I th- I think uh, we did extremely well. With I, I think we got more votes per dollar than than almost anybody across the country in the primary uh, last year. But we have to do better on fundraising this year. There's no doubt about it. And how many volunteers do you have? Um, right now, I have you know people signed up. I again, I don't have. I mean, I've got a, I've got at least a hundred people who would be at on call, willing to go out and hit the streets right now. Um, but the reality is, we we don't have materials printed yet. So. 
And and again, people are, you know, we're right around the November election. People are very focused on local elections. And then, uh, you know, the holidays, the, the winter holidays are always a really slow time <laughs> for politics because people are, you know, they're like, oh, my God, we just got out of the November elections. And so I don't think we're going to really be picking up steam probably until after the new year. But we really need to be ramping up come, you know, mid-January. And will you be able to knock on doors or you're just phone banking or how are you doing it? We're going to do it all. We're going to do whatever the funding allows us to do. If we if we can get out and knock on doors, absolutely, we're going to get out there and knock on doors. Um, I think with the COVID restrictions that were in place in 2020, it really, we just made a conscious campaign decision that we weren't going to get out there. Um, and I think things have changed with our understanding of COVID and as long as our volunteers are out there and they're masked um, and, and, you know, they're staying distant. Like, you, you know, I went out to, um, in fact, that's the last time I was, I was really in your area. Ohio. I went out, well, I went to Ohio in August to canvas for Nina Turner, but last year in 2020, I went out to Delaware and I canvassed for Jessica Rain, um, who was, who was running against Chris Coons, uh, for Delaware Senate seat. And I went out to West Virginia and I canvassed for Paula Jean Swearingen and Hillary Turner. Hillary was running West Virginia's third district. And, and I, you know, being out there on the ground, I, I think, um, field, the field game is really, really important. People weren't too worried about somebody coming and knocking at their door. Like I said, we had masks, we're handing them literature or we're tucking literature into doors and we're having those distance conversations, which are really easy to do. And I, and I, so having, having a strong field game is going to be essential for um, a, a progressive to, to win this seat. So right now you have about a hundred volunteers. How many more volunteers do you need? Um, well, I don't, you know, here's what I would say. I, I want as many local volunteers as I possibly can. Um, but I am not at a point where I can do anything with them right now. So people are signing up to volunteer. What I really need is campaign funding. I need campaign funding more than I need volunteers right now. Uh, because the campaign funding is going to get me the printed materials that I'm going to have in hand that I can then give to the volunteers and say, all right, go, go knock doors. So, uh, I don't, I'm not discouraging anybody to sign up for volunteering for my campaign. I'm just saying if you do sign up to volunteer for my campaign, just know that we're in a lull right now until we can get the funding to get materials in your hand. So we need to raise $230,000 for Jason Call. Everybody I would hear love that? that. That would be amazing. <laughs> we're going to make it happen. <laughs> um, so I understand that Boeing is in you has has a facility in your district. And how would you get Boeing out of your district and then and would you want to and then how would you replace those jobs? Um so it, it's an interesting question. I don't necessarily for I don't necessarily want to get Boeing out of my district. I mean, listen, we're not going to shut Boeing down as a company and you know, those are good union jobs. What, what we really need to recognize is that we have to scale back the aviation industry if we're going to tackle climate change. And that's something that, that Larson are, and I are very much on the opposite ends of, you know, him being one, t- being chair of the aviation uh, uh, subcommittee of transportation, also taking tons of money from Boeing and all of the airlines and all of the airline manufacturers. I mean, he is just deep, deep in those pockets. Um, 
But Boeing jobs are good union jobs. I don't want to I don't want to shut down good union jobs. What I do want is to scale back the aviation industry because air travel is not environmentally friendly any way you cut it. So I don't think you can just shut down an industry. Um, but you know, Larson talks about expanding the avian industry. We can, we cannot expand the aviation industry, not if we're going to be serious about tackling ch- climate change. So what I would do is, is one, you know, I would message to those workers, look, there's, there is a reality here that we're going to have to scale your industry back. Uh, certainly we can, I, I am in, in uh, part of, you know, this is just part of the green new deal that anybody who has transitioned out of a job because that industry has to scale back, whether it's coal workers or, or pipeline workers, or, you know, we want employment, we want people to be employed, but we just, we want them to be employed in industries that are going to benefit the environment, not continue to harm the environment. So that's where I have to be, you know, I want to be consistent in my messaging and I want to make sure that people understand just transition is an extremely important thing for, uh, for the future. We, we want to make sure people are employed with, you know, good paying jobs with good benefits, you know, hopefully union jobs and unions are, are not particular fans of, uh, Rick Larson. I mean, he, he has lost, um, endorsements from unions in the past. I think, uh, the Boeing union was really opposition. I don't remember exactly what the industry, the, the issue was, but, uh, they didn't endorse him a, a few years back because, you know, he took the side of management over the side of labor. I'm always going to take the side of labor. That's just who I am. Uh, and, and if I can convince those workers that listen, you know, we, there are some realities that we're facing here in the future. I think we can be honest about that, but we will make sure that you guys will have good paying jobs. And have you gotten the chance to speak with uh, uh, union organizers and and people who have union jobs? Um, not yet. I haven't. Um, Let's just say I, I went down. I know locally we are having some strike actions uh, with the with the Northwest Carpenters Union. I've been supportive of of their. They they have voted against a contract like four times now. Union leadership is a is a tough you know a tough nut to crack because union leaders tend to have these long term relationships with the representatives. Like, you know, it's a very, it's a very cozy relationship. Doesn't always work out best for the actual union workers. Um, but the, the union leaders are very often kind of tied into management more than they should be. I, I am a unionist in that, you know, I, I'm willing to support strike actions so that workers have, have better pay work and working conditions. I mean, one of the things that the carpenters are fighting with right now is that uh, they have to they have to pay for parking on their job sites in Seattle. And so they're working an hour just to pay for the parking that they have to pay for for the day before they even start making money on the job, like the first hour of their work goes to parking. So they're fighting to say, hey, you know what? We should get free parking. Either the, either the management should work out that we get free parking or, or there just shouldn't be any fees for parking. This is ridiculous. And so they're striking over things like that. You know, it's not it's not just benefits and pay. It's like it's some some uh, some of those, you know, sort of side issues. So the uh, reality is I'm, I'm going to support whatever I can support to make sure people um, have those good paying jobs and 
you know, that they're able, they're able to take care of their families and pay their rents. And, and, and a lot of times people are, are, uh, even though they're working those full-time jobs, they're, they're, they're still in financial trouble because, because they're not, they're not getting those concessions from management. So Jason, what is your understanding of economics, um, since you've been running, how has it changed? Well, um, I understand that that um, this idea of austerity and and paygo uh, is one. It's 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 a it's a wrong way to look at things. I think uh, generally economically, a rising tide lifts all boats, and so austerity economics doesn't make sense. I mean, obviously, you know, if you have people who can't put back into the economy because they're not they don't have the money in their own pockets to do that. That's, that's a dysfunctional economy. Now it works very well for the people who are siphoning all that wealth up to the top 1% or 0.1% or 0.01% of the population, but it does not work. Austerity, austerity economics doesn't work for the majority of people. So we need an economic system that is going to work for everybody. And we obviously don't have that right now. So, the, what what I seem to be confronting a lot um, when I talk to people is when I talk about different kinds of policies like um, Green New Deal, Medicare mm-hmm. for All, um, uh, higher education. Uh, I find that people have a fear that that money is going to be taxed from them. And how do you explain to people that that is not going to come out of their pockets themselves and that it, it will be federally funded? Um, well, I mean, I, I think you just ha- th- those questions are going to come up and I think you just need to be very upfront about it. Or I, as a candidate, I'm just going to need to be very un- upfront about it, that, that the federal government can pay for whatever it wants to pay for. It's not a matter of can we pay for it. It's a matter of what our priorities are. So if our priorities are, and and you know, I do get the feeling that there are a ton of people in Congress who who don't who don't have that understanding about federal spending. Uh, that the you know, um, it, it it's odd that when it's tax cuts for the rich or when it's war machine spending, you know, nobody really questions where that money is coming from. But when it it is. When it's something that's going to be social services uh, to benefit the poor or investments to clean up the environment and, and change our energy systems, people are um, people have this notion that that we're we're putting this spending onto our kids or that China is going to own that debt or whatever it might be. And so there's just some really really false notions about. Uh, about federal spending. And so I have to get out there and and the reality is that that the government has to redefine its priorities um, in order to help people and planet. That's that's the only way we're going to make it through the next 20, 30 years and, and, and come out the other side of it without, you know, just absolute disaster in terms of climate and economy. So, you know, when, when we talk about how are you going to pay for it, essentially the federal government can pay for whatever it wants to pay for. You know, it's really just a matter of priorities. Uh, as, as long as we have the labor force to, 
to do the work, whatever that work is that need to be done, building infrastructure, being in, being in education, training the workforce. You know, healthcare is a huge issue. Uh, we should be training tons of doctors and nurses. They shouldn't be saddled with debt <laughs> once they get out into the workforce. That, that training should be free. All of this has benefit uh, in the long run to people. Now, it, it is true that some people in the end might not be getting fantastically rich off of this, but the reality is the economy is going to work better for most people. So when people come back, you know, politicians uh, or, or conservatives, people who have conservative economic, under, uh, you know, thoughts say, well, uh, we don't have the money to pay for that. They are what they are thinking is this is going to impact uh, stockholders. This is going to impact CEO salaries. This isn't you know. I think there's this idea of people being wealthy. Sometimes people think that they're wealthy. They think they're part of an upper echelon of of economic strata. When the reality is they're they're still working working class. And people talk about you know, well, I'm a capitalist. Well, do you have capital? If you don't have capital, if you're not part of the actual ownership class, and very few people are. You're not you're not a capitalist, right? You're 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 a laborer like everybody else. So we want. We want an economy that functions for all people. We can't have, we can't continue to have this economy where, you know, 37% of our kids are in poverty and, and we're, we're struggling to figure out how kids are going to eat in, in the morning. And, and, uh, we, we end up with, with uh, you know, what are we, $1.7, $1.8 trillion in student debt right now. All of that is actually a drain on the economy for people who think that they are rich. It impacts everybody. The, so the only people who are really getting away sort of with it in this economy are the, are the fantastically wealthy. And it's, it's very hard to convince people who are who are pretty well off by comparison that you're there 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 are millions of people in this country who are languishing right now and you could with any turn uh any roll of the dice uh you could be one of those people also so how do we how do we build an economy that has security in it for everybody um it's again it's a tough conversation to have for people who feel like they're pretty secure right now what is the the median income in your district? Oh, I want to say it's around sixty five, seventy thousand dollars. I've got it written down somewhere, but I think it's about that. Okay, and so if you can explain to these people that listen, you know, you can get an education, and you can get health care, and you can get you know um, affordable housing and things like that, and it won't come out of your taxes then they, they, their eyes kind of will open up and, and shine and they'll start listening, which is great well, that you know that. And, and one of the things, I mean, we have, there's, there's a weird sort of, you know, this sort of bootstrap mentality uh, that we have in America, this sort of wild west and everybody's responsible for themselves. 
you know, people, people look at our homeless population. I mean, I honestly, I, I, I work as a commercial property uh, inspector for an insurance company It's property insurance, not health insurance. I would never work for a health insurance company, but you know, I just, I do building inspections for safety. And I was out at a building um, just this morning uh, and, and the owner of the building was complaining about the homeless population. I didn't want to get into it with him right there. Cause I'm doing a job and I'm representing my company, but I was like, well, aren't you, aren't you worried about why that instead of complaining that homeless people are sleeping in your doorway, aren't, aren't, aren't you concerned that we have homeless people at all? You know, and, you know, it wasn't the right time for me to have that conversation, but I think that's the conversation that needs to be had. Why do we have homeless people in the wealthiest country in the world? Why do we have student debt when we, when we could clearly afford to pay for everybody's education? You know, I mean, it's, you know, we, we could just pay for it. We just pay for it. That's it. And you get that economic return. Isn't it more of a drain? You know, when people are worried about crime that comes from homelessness and poverty, well, why wouldn't you work to live in the, the, the best way to eliminate crime that is associated with poverty is to eliminate poverty, you know? And, and I think that when people have this sort of, like I said, sort of bootstrap Wild West mentality, they're like, well, I'm not responsible for people's bad choices. Um, and But in the end, I do in a way feel like we're all responsible for each other. You know, I don't know what the conditions were. I mean, a lot, we know that a lot of our homeless population are veterans, veterans who came back from war, have mental illness, have PTSD, and the healthcare system did not take care of them properly when they came back from, from war. Um, why are we not addressing those issues and making sure that we don't have a mental health crisis where we don't have a, a homelessness uh, uh, crisis? We have... You know, I, I think the, the statistic that gets thrown around is like there are six empty homes for every homeless person. Why aren't we addressing the fact that we don't really have a housing crisis? We have a ton of houses. We just won't let people live in them because we're looking at housing as an opportunity for landlords to profit rather than housing being there to actually house people. So there's a the mentality like that in America, and America seems to be very unique in that in sort of Western nations. I think a lot of the the, the countries in, in Europe uh, have got this thing figured out, like we need to take care of people. Um, but America has not gotten that figured out yet. And, and that, that's the part of the, that's part of the conversation I want to have when I'm talking, talking to constituents is, you know, let's, let's address some of the underlying, uh, root problems of quote unquote crime in our country and poverty and homelessness. Uh, and, and the reality is austerity economics, austerity politics are the primary cause of why we have these social ills. Agreed. Um, have you looked into um, the federal jobs guarantee? Yes. What What do you think about it and how would you sell it to your constituents? Well, uh, I, you know, first of all, I'm in, in full support and it, and it's part of the, it's part of the green new deal. You know, I, I think, um, one of the things that I really think that we need to talk about is, um, if we have there, so it's, it's, I, I, I need to organize my thoughts on this a little bit, but you know, we don't really have a labor shortage, right? You know, people are talking about there's a labor shortage right now. There's not a labor shortage right now. Um, we, we actually, um, have policies that are, and I forget, I think it's Nairu, N-A-I-R-U, where there's a, there's a, there's a set, 
unemployment rate that is satisfactory that people say, well, if we keep on, if we have full employment, we're going to get inflation. Well, that's ridiculous to me. We need full employment. You know, there's to, to, to have policies that are like, you know, these are our policies that we're okay with a certain amount of unemployment is just ridiculous to me. You know, everybody who, who can work, who wants to work should work and we should be taking care of people who are unable to work. Um, so, so I definitely think that the federal jobs guarantee has a, has the right direction, uh, in terms of making sure that we eliminate this unemployment problem. Um, there, there are things that need to be done. There's infrastructure that needs to be built, and and these can be good jobs. Oh, and then the other thing I wanted to say about it was, you know, I, I think we're at a point where the 40-hour work week is too much. I think people are very stressed out. They're, the people who are working are working uh, very hard. We shouldn't need people to work overtime. You know, we should, we should actually be scaling our work week down to about 32 hours, give people a four-day work week, work week and a three-day weekend, uh, and still have them make the income that that living wage off of a four-day work week. That's another way that we can address uh, unemployment and get to full employment. Absolutely. Um, Jeff, would you like to ask your question? I would. I want to say a couple things before I do. Um, number one is I just interviewed someone and he said the, the really addressed what you said in a really concise way. We don't have a worker shortage. We have a workers willing to be exploited shortage. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So my question, my question for you, uh, Okay. Once you enter Congress, you're going to be strongly encouraged to do many hours of daily call time, and you're going to be lavished with favors and promises. And all of these things are intended to, in my view, to disconnect you from your constituents and to focus you on the, you know, the needs of those who donate to you. Um, but it's also a reality that that running for office and getting reelected requires money. So I want to ask you, what do you plan on doing to keep in touch with all of your constituents? And how will you balance that tension of needing money to be reelected if you choose to be reelected? Um, and I want you to answer personally, but as far as I'm concerned, this is bigger than you. The system corrupts even the best of us. Yeah. So there has to be something bigger than just you. And, you know, so like, are what kind of support system will be created or whatever that means to you um, in order to prevent losing touch with what really matters, which is all of your constituents, the most disadvantaged of your constituents. And it's just a final thing to add on to this is does MMT and MMT academics as advisors or something to that effect play a role in that at all? Okay, so um, I'll start out by saying that that I I am fully cognizant that our political system is entirely corrupt. I mean that is that is the the root of really every problem that we have right now is moneyed corruption. It is it is corporate ownership of the Republican Party uh, in full 
and the better part of the Democratic Party. In fact, you know, I I, I, I don't know that there's more than a, a handful of representatives in, in Congress right now who are like, yeah, I'm fully grassroots. Um, you know, even you know, even Pramila Jayapal, she's, she's got some questionable money on, on her, on her, uh, on her donorship. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm running a fully grassroots campaign. I, I would not take a corporate pack cent. Um, and, uh, and what that is going to do is that is going to free me up to, to really vote my conscience and put bills forward that are the bills that I think are going to solve our problems, you know, and one of the things that we've really got to start with is campaign finance reform and getting a public uh, financing system uh, in place and to get corporate money just fully out of the system. And if people want to take union money out of the system also, I'm fine with that also. Um, we, we could, I, I, I read a study, it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago, um, uh, that, that we could, we could finance every election in the country with a sort of $10, if you want to call it a tax, call it a tax, right? You know, you get every, everybody in the country who's a voter, uh, pull $10 out of it. But again, you know, that even goes out uh, against MMT. So, you know, let's just dispense with that. Just say for every person in the country, if the federal government simply invested $10, they could finance every campaign. You know, there would have to be restrict some restrictions like, yeah, you got to go collect signatures and, you know, you got to be a legitimate candidate and, and, and whatever those boundaries might be. But the federal government could pay for that. And they could not only pay for it at the federal level, they could pay for it at state and local elections too. So getting corporate money out of the system is absolutely essential if we are going to recapture any semblance of democracy, because what we have right now is not what I would consider democracy. Um, we have corporatocracy and we have just basically giant corporate money donors uh, controlling our representatives and therefore controlling the system. So we're not we're not going to get those assistances to the working class, to the poor. We're not going to solve the healthcare problems. You know, we're not going to solve the climate crisis uh, while we have corporations in charge of the in charge of our represent representatives and in charge of our government. So it would st- I would start there. I mean, that is one of my big frustrations with uh, progressives at this point is that nobody has introduced a campaign finance bill. And people would say, well, it wouldn't pass. All right, but you still got to put it out there and try and sell it to people that this is a problem with our system. So you will see me on social media uh, really calling out progressives saying, why are you not talking about money corruption in our government? You know that is the root of the problem. Why are you not talking about it? So that is something that I would do. Now, certainly I would not be uh, joining in with the DNC. In fact, this is one of the things that I think um, the progressives did do right when AOC started her current to change pack. And she said, okay, well, I'm going to take grassroots dollars from this. And this is how we are going to fund progressive campaigns. Um, I thought that was a great move. And I understand that it was a lot of consternation when she turned around and started giving donations to uh, corporate Democrats so that they could beat win their races against Republicans. Now, I kind of understand why she did that, but it's still a bad look. But that's really the way we need to to go. We need to have some kind of system where we say, look, we are, I, I would prefer it to be fully publicly financed. Um, but if we can't get to public finance right now, we really have to call on people who want change to kick in a few bucks, right? If you want to get these progressives elected, you know, that's my message to people who want to fund me, but it's not just me. It's progressives running all over the country. 
if you want these people to be elected and get real systemic change in the system, you're going to have to fund it right now because nobody is putting forward a campaign finance reform bill. So, uh, but I would not participate in any uh, uh, uh pay to play any, you know, favors or anything like that. I am there for policy and policy alone. All right. Let me ask, let me ask, I, you kind of answered this, but I just would like to, for, for clarification of this. So yeah, I, I mean, I agree with everything you said, get money out of politics, propose the bill, even if it's not going to immediately pass and so on. But what do you do between here and there? You, you know, you, the bill is not going to pass immediately, even if it does pass. It's not going to pass immediately. So how do you survive until then? I, I, think, you, I, I think you have to be um, just open and transparent with your constituents and, you know, or, or anybody around the country who wants to help change politics. Um, I, I've always said that I want to be that guy who comes back from Washington, D.C. and holds town halls. This is something that my the, the, the incumbent here, you know, doesn't do. I mean, he just does not engage with constituents. And when he does, he's arrogant. And it's it's very much, a, you know, well, the people in Washington, D.C. are the people who know what's going on. And you guys are just, you know, you guys are going to have to take what we give you. Um, but I don't want to do that. I want, I want to come back and I want to, I want to tell people exactly what's going on with bills. This is, this is, uh, I don't, like I said, I don't think people understand how, uh, how bills actually get hacked and slashed as they go through that amendment process. But I would be the person that came right back to my constituents. And I said, look, this amendment got proposed. Uh, it, it passed and here are the people who voted for it and here's why they voted for it and here's who's funding them. And I voted against it. And, and, uh, if, if you, if you want to, um, get better policy, I think you have to have a constituency that is more aware of the machinery of politics. And I, that's what I'd be there for. I'd be, you know, I'm an open door when it comes to explaining to people. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I, I'm like, I'll name names. Yeah, this person voted for this, and it was a terrible thing, and you should vote him out of office. You know, that's that was exactly going to be my next question. I was going to ask Jason. Jason, call. Will you hold weekly, biweekly, monthly, whatever it is, um, uh, meetings with with the public, with your constituents and the public at large, explaining to them exactly what's happening, explaining bills to them, and explaining policy and why that policy needs to be um, enacted and explaining economics so people understand how it's being paid for yep. and they don't go through this channel of being completely confused. Mm. Yep, absolutely. And we and the thing is we can't count on corporate media to do to do the job of explaining to people what's happening. I mean, their corporate media is sensationalist and they're all owned by the same people who who don't want good progressive policy to pass. So, you know, you you can't rely you can't rely on like, you know, a CNN interview uh that's a that's a 30-second clip to under, to have any real understanding of of what the political process is. Well, I cannot wait to call you Congressman Call. I can't wait for that to happen. And um, thank you so much for talking to us. I really appreciate it. And I hope everybody that's listening to this will um, donate a little bit of money to you to help you raise the amount of money that you need so that you can connect with your constituents with all of the volunteers that you already have. 
Yeah, Thank I appreciate that. I appreciate it very much. I've I've very much enjoyed uh, uh, talking, and you know, I know sometimes my my thoughts are a little bit disjointed here, but uh, I, I hope I hope I I got my message across. Um, and if anybody wants to check out my website and and really take a look at the the policies, and also, uh, you know, it, I would encourage people to take a look at really how bad the incumbent is that I'm running against. It's all on my website, um, callforcongress.com. Go look at Rick's receipts. We've done a deep dive into all of his corporate funding and all of his terrible votes. Um, and you know, I, I really think every progressive candidate needs to do that. I mean, we are fighting corruption here. That's what that's really what the problem is. We are fighting just an, an insane amount of corruption. So your website is callforcongress.com. And mm-hmm. then where else can people find you? Uh, call for Congress on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, you know, yeah, all this, all the social medias are call for Congress. F O R, not the number four. Fantastic. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Bye, Jason. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Ramon. Appreciate it, Jeff. It was it was really nice having you on. Thanks a lot, Jason. Thank you. for this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape-A-Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online Headliner app.
Welcome to the first Activist MMT candidate interview, hosted by Ramona Masachi and co-hosted by me, Jeff Epstein. Today we talk with candidate Jason Call, who is running in Washington State's 2nd Congressional District against a 20-year incumbent that Jason calls, quote, arguably the most corporate conservative Democrat in the Washington State delegation. This is someone who benefits from large donations from corporations that pollute and exacerbate the climate crisis, among other things. In 2020, Jason came within one percentage point of placing second in a district where the top two candidates, regardless of party, move on to the general election. He earned about 35,000 votes on a shoestring budget of $50,000. For the upcoming primary in August 2022, He's going to need a lot more than that to breach the top two and have an actual policy debate with a candidate who has little to offer beyond moderately less abuse than the Republican. You can support Jason's candidacy by visiting callforcongress.com. That's F-O-R, not the number four. There are three goals of this MMT candidate interview series. The first is to support and give a platform to candidates who care about all people and because of this are ignored by the so-called news outlets that are in reality news of, by, and for the rich. The second goal is to determine what these candidates need to beat corrupt opponents supported by a corrupt party and a corrupt campaign finance system, and especially once in office to avoid becoming corrupted themselves. Finally, the third goal is to create a community of like-minded, MMT-aware candidates who can support each other through their campaigns and especially once in office. The latter is in order to remain focused on what really matters, which is all their constituents, in an environment where there is overwhelming pressure to focus only on the needs, favors, promises, and especially money of big donors both in and out of their district. If you're a candidate and would like to be interviewed by Ramona, please contact Ramona directly on Twitter at, at Ramona Masachi or by writing me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If you like what you hear and would like to support this interview series and this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash activistmmt. And now, on to our conversation with candidate for Washington State's 2nd Congressional District, Jason Call. Enjoy.